Hello and welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast, a podcast that explores L&D that works with those who are making it work. In this episode, I'm welcoming back Danny Seals to discuss his new book, The Insightful Innovator. So without further ado, let's get into it. Danny, welcome back to the Learning and Development Podcast. It's good to be back. It's good to be back, David. It feels like it was only yesterday when I was on. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe you're confusing it with the with the time that I recently came onto your podcast. But but you know what? I'll I'll mention that perhaps in the uh, in the intro. <laughs> okay, okay. And what a great show that was, David. To what be a fair. great show! Yeah, what a great show that was, Danny. Uh, but look, before we go any further, Danny, congratulations on the release of your book, The Insightful Innovator. Um, I think we should start there. Um, could you kick off by telling us about the book and what compelled you to write it? Yes, I guess. Um... It's a good question, and it's a big question, I guess. I, it probably makes sense to go all the way back. So I've kind of been doing mental gymnastics probably over the last 10-plus years, kind of constantly asking myself, actually, how can we design better employee people experiences? Mm. And the kind of the question set me off on, on, on a bit of a wild quest, I guess, exploring various paths, kind of dabbled in everything from um, experience design, immersive theatre design, we've punch drunk right the way through to kind of human-centred design and speculative design. Ultimately, looking at service design and system thinking in the mix as well. But then I kind of came to the realization that actually there isn't a one size fits all. And actually, if I want this unique approach to kind of um, creating better employee experiences and people experiences, then I'd have to kind of create himself. Mm. So that's kind of where the insightful innovator comes in. It's pretty much a reflection of my career adventure so far built on a decade of that experience right and that that burning curiosity i guess when i think about it i've been helping companies from startups right away through to massive organizations and banks ultimately use this design approach and design better better spies so stick with me let me explain what spies is actually so i guess the way i and it actually this stems from when we was in Belgium, I think, was it 2018, 2019? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we was having a talk about this, and this is where it stems from. So I know we we started talking about what does employee experience look like and, and what does it even mean? And then spies is ultimately where I landed. So when I think about spies, it's when you look at your employee experience, it's a collection of services, products, interactions, and experiences over here. And then your employee is... The subscription, right? Mm-hmm. They subscribe to come into work or if they don't. A bit like how your Netflix or your Spotify works. If you don't have a great experience, you unsubscribe and you go to another another streaming service. And that's how employees are with work. Mm-hmm. So I guess based on that whole reflection, it was a case of, right, maybe it's time I give this, this book writing a crack. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where it went from. And I was like, let's try it. And it ended up being free books. So yeah. One answer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, brilliant, and uh, and I take it then that I get a credit for uh, uh, in the uh, in the book. Oh yes, oh yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. It's it was funny. I was thinking about this before I was coming on, and I remember we was. I remember when we was in Belgium, and we mm. I think we had, we went out for some food and we had a drink, mm-hmm. and we we bounced this around mm. quite a bit. So I mean, to be honest, fifty percent of spies is you, David James. Well, I didn't want to there say. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a big deal. So 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 you've uh, so you set the scene there, Danny. Um, uh, and I know that that 
not only is this your thing, employee experience, I think that uh, that, that it's fair to say that you've um, you've been somewhat frustrated, perhaps by its uh, uh, perhaps its lack of adoption, its uh, its cat handed adoption, and dare I say even worse, its its non adoption. But the titles change. How many how many learning experience or people experience um, uh, uh, people are out there that are just doing what was done before? Uh, so we've added experience, um, uh, but without actually changing the the substance. So I wonder then, this, that's a roundabout way of asking you, what problems are you aiming to solve with with this book, about the three books? So it's, there's a short answer and a long answer, but I'm going to go with a long answer because I've got some quality time with David James. <laughs> um, so I guess for me, you know, the, the problem I'm trying to solve is I'm aiming to create teams or people within businesses who can create better internal employee product service and experiences right and just make just make work better by good design that's it mm. and it's funny it's funny it probably sounds a little bit creepy actually now we'll say it out loud but when i was writing this book i wrote a a, a list of fight club rules what i mm. had to stick to when writing it and i also kind of printed off a handful of of pictures who i know in my network and some of these some of these people in my network were heads of LD, some were people ops, employee experience, talent, HR, and all that good stuff. And it was all from my eye at different stages in their career. Mm. Some were really ahead of the game and some were new. So it was like different areas of your kind of career. So whenever I wrote something for a book, the kind of I always went, right, am I sticking to my fight club rules? And am I being honest and true to myself? And actually are these handful of people going to read this book and get value from it? And are they going to be able to not only read it, but actually apply it straight away? Mm. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. You know, I guess each person, each organization has its own unique challenges. And whether that be designing a new leadership, a new onboarding, offboarding, internal listening strategy. And the big thing for me is, while I don't want people to kind of, pick this up and think this is it this is the only way it can be done it's a it's a flow and the flow has been there for you to iterate on it bringing your business strategy and your business context on it mm. so while the problem isn't massively it's this problem the problem is a bigger problem it's just help you design better for better work experiences mm. so it's like a long way of saying there isn't a specific problem it's a it's a book i'm trying to create chefs not cooks so I'm going to give you the tools, but you're going to create your own recipe and you're going to apply your own sprinkle on top of it. So it's a long answer, I guess, but a really short one in some respects. Mm. And so, so what so is your aim? And just to clarify um, that you're looking to, to create experiences that, you know, if we, if we, we look at the learning and development profession, the experiences are looking to shift how people think, or are you talking about the employee experience more broadly across an organization in which the, the experience that they have day to day is enhanced? Well, I guess it's both because if you think about Bob also in their working day, okay. Mm. So there's a real macro experience of what employee experiences and we can talk about belonging and really abstract stuff or we can talk about the stuff what actually really matters and the stuff mm. what you interact with every day 
when you look at what that is, that's people products, that's people experiences, services from, you know, when you think about a service, a service is basically help someone get a desired outcome, mm-hmm. whether that's booking a, a holiday, getting your driving license, booking leave, that's a service. Yeah. And throughout your employee experience, you're going to interact with lots of services. Your products is your potential leadership product. And that's a whole minefield where I can go down. And then your kind of experiences are your onboarding, your offboarding experiences. Mm. So the goal is to give the people who design these a better way at stretching their thinking. Because I think, you know, if you think about it from an L&D point of view, if I ask L&D to create a leadership program, it's probably a similar leadership program what's going on around other companies. Mm. But the reality of it is, is you shouldn't really be following best practices because by definition, they're bang average. Like yeah. The definition of best practices is average. And what I want you to do is kind of not look at what things are, but also look at things what they could be. Mm. And to do that, you need to look at the kind of service, what's in place, the system, the organizational system, mm. and the human tensions. So you've so you've, you mentioned then that uh, that that this isn't a book for L and D. So it's broader than L and D, but it 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 doesn't take much to to see how it can clearly be applied. And not just that, that it, it could probably address a lot of the ills uh, and the the deficiencies in learning and development that we've experienced for for a long time. For one, uh, understanding a problem, uh, you, you you explore that through sense making uh, as a useful way to start. Now. I believe L&D finds it difficult to understand or measure its impacts because it's not solving real problems. Mm. Um, what it's trying to do is is solve learning problems, which are generally perceived problems by learning and development and people who believe that learning and development should look and and act a certain way rather than solve problems and and, and make meaningful and predictable impacts. So, how can we use your approach to understanding? So so for me, when I think about my design approach, there's kind of a couple of key themes of design. So I've got sense making, I've got incubation um, and experimentation, and mm-hmm. then I've got experience design. And then the, sec- the kind of final part is around culture crafting. But if we focus p- predominantly on what book one is about, <clears throat> it's, it's about making sense of the problem and really understanding what that problem is and making sense of that problem from various lenses so the problem is is with potential l and d like you say it's an l and d problem and when everything's you know if the only tool you have is a hammer then you know there's that whole kind of a saying but the reality of it isn't is there's there's nuance to everything what we design Mm. if you ask 100 people what is the onboarding problem and you ask 100 stakeholders they're going to have very different points of view Mm. and somewhere in the middle of the the employees' tension and what their experience is like, and somewhere in the middle of the kind of stakeholders, and then there's a the whole organization and the structure and the kind of the hierarchy. Somewhere in in sense of all that noise, there's the answer. Mm. But it's probably not going to be learning, mm. and it might be right. Like it might be learning, and if it is, great. But it's not. It's not not always just learning. Mm. When I think about a lot of the work what I've done, whether it's redesigning EVPs or or onboarding or talent or reward or performance, it's very rarely kind of learning. It's, don't get me wrong, it'll have a thread of that. Mm. 
But ultimately, it's about reframing what the challenge is. And to do that, you first have to go and make sense of it from these points of view, from your employee and go and observe what they're actually doing in the real world. Go and identify their real tensions. Because if not, all you're really doing is building something around bias. Mm. And then, you know, you see it a lot in L&D. They have solution seduction, which is basically, this is the thing. My solution is L&D and I'm seduced by that. And there's no, nothing what you'd say to L&D at that point they will listen to because they're so seduced by the learning. And actually, if you turn around and go, well, if you want to design a leadership program, maybe the question you should ask is why do we need leadership in the first place rather than we need a leadership program? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of it is around stretching your thinking and, and trying to challenge the challenge first and foremost. Yeah, that, that really resonates. I know that... Uh, that... You know, you and I have been talking for a, for a long time. One of the things that frustrates me is that the L and D communities might ask each other, um, "Has anyone got anything on leadership?" Um, I mean, first of all, if anything will do, <laughs> then yeah. really, like, does, is it really that necessary? But but the idea that you can pull together a worthwhile, meaningful, and uh, potentially impactful le- leadership development program by asking your peers what they would stuff into a program themselves you're missing the trick. What, what what you and I know is that if you have leaders within the context of your organization, ideally even in the, the context of the function in which they're expected to perform, because we can't say that 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 sales uh, lead, leadership looks like IT leadership, uh, unless you really are that struck for bud, um, uh, stuffed for budget, that that you've got no choice but to, to pull all these together. And then you can celebrate the unintended consequence of, uh, of bringing people together and learning from uh, learning about the the rest of the organization. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. But, um, but it's, go, oh, go on, go for it. Go for it. Yeah. yeah so, so, so my, my, my point there is that, uh, that, that, that so much is wrong with, with the status quo in learning and development that, that, that sometimes we just, I was going to say, I, I, I'm not, they, they so much more than overlook the opportunities to truly understand what it is that we are, that, that, that what we can fix with leadership. I, I paused there for a moment because I thought leadership almost can act like a, an example, but also a misnomer. There, mm. There's everywhere I've worked where, where I had to deliver generic leadership content i could guarantee that i would i could get eight nines or tens on a, on a happy sheet and have people stay afterwards and tell me that that was both interesting and pretty much guarantee that one person will tell me that's changed their life right it is an absolute dead cert but you could also pretty much bank on three months in three months time that the the KPIs that that leader are accountable for will not have demonstrably improved because of what you did. Mm. Yeah, and and this is a great. Here we go. Let's get into leadership. So, <laughs> um, for me, leadership is an act. It's not a role. Mm. And anyone can be a leader. And most, a lot of leaders shouldn't be leaders. Like, I'm I'm going to just call the baby ugly. Mm. A lot of people who are in leadership are in there because they had nowhere to go in their career. And, well, they're great at one job, so they're great at this job. And then they'll get to a point where they're in leadership by proxy, mm. which is shocking because what happens is as an organization, you then get this band of fat, or maybe not fat, but you get this band around the organization, which is full of leaders who have gone so far, gone up into their leadership role, 
because that's how you get more money. Mm-hmm. That's how you get more clout. Doesn't necessarily make him a good leader. And it's called Peter Principle. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you get the people underneath him having to line into these leaders. And these leaders are, shouldn't be in leadership, but then they've got nowhere to go. So you've got this real tricky dynamic where the people underneath them are potentially a lot more switched on. They've got fire. They want to be great leaders, but they can't because the leader at the top is is shocking. Mm. Now, if you... like Lego is a great example of this. Lego looked at their leadership program completely different. And they created this leadership playground. And they stripped down what the leader is and then they distributed some of the tasks out and the activities and what makes a great leader which then freed up the team manager to do some of the stuff that they really loved. Now, the reality of it is, is whether you like it or not, leadership is often in place as a protection to the business. Hmm. Like if you look at a leader's role, and I know I'm going to get someone throwing stones at my house here, but a lot of the leadership's role is admin. Hmm. A lot of it is there is because the teams don't feel safe to make decisions. A lot of people don't have the autonomy to make them decisions. So what we'll do is we'll put a leader in place to do all the admin roles. And then they get bogged down with these roles. We can't actually develop their people. They can't actually have real rich, insightful conversations because they're too busy managing risk. Mm. And often the risk isn't actually risk. It's silly decision making. That's it. So, yeah, it's... um. The leadership could just be a whole hour conversation. <laughs> but, but, but for me, that is something what is ripe for disruption. Mm. I'm ripe for going, actually, rather than design another off-the-shelf leadership pro- like program, what happens if we challenge the actual fundamental DNA of what leadership is first and mm. foremost, and then design from there? Yeah. Or you know, another approach which I've advocated for on this podcast many a time, Danny, is give people a map of the terrain. Uh, give leaders a map of the organization that they work in, how people are successful, uh, map out what that looks like as uh, through assimilation, um, through to performance um, and mastery, uh, and then help people along the way. But unfortunately, as, as you've alluded to there, um, uh, too often we are obsessed by uh, generic or universal leadership traits. And so we ply courses full of full of those instead of understanding, which is the point we're discussing here. Well, this is it, right? Like if you think about sense making, again, I'm going to go back to the book in case you didn't know I've got a book out there. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a whole piece around sense making, right? Like first of all, most it's sense making of a human, the service and the system in place. And when you look at leadership and you look at what that is, it's the system in place is the organization. Mm. So it's got nuance. It's got, a window into culture of what that means at your business. By you taking something what is off the shelf, you let go of nuance, you let go of the context to what that means to your business. Mm-hmm. So by proxy, you're doing a disservice because you're just going for a the boiled rice of leadership. Mm. Really, it should be something personalized and specific. Again, what leadership is, is very different to individual companies anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, so going back to your book, Danny, uh, you've, uh, you challenge the reader to um, create great relationship experience. What do you mean by this? And can you give us an example? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. I've got to just get off my leadership high horse now. <laughs> um, if you think about work, you're going to be kind of, you know, when you think about your stakeholders, you in any environment, actually, you're likely going to 
being in kind of bumping into various forms of tension, whether that be red tape, whether that be ego, self-preservation, or competing priorities. And I'm a big kind of advocate of having difficult conversations really early on instead of just avoiding them and sticking our head in the sand. And then they end up being this massive thing later on down the line. And for me, that kind of that belief turned into a tool. It was around about 2016 where I created this this tool called Dare. I know, right? Crazy name. Um, but ultimately it's design a relationship experience. Mm. And it is. It's a bit like you say, it's in the book. And actually it's getting quite a lot of attention and something I'm low-key quite happy about, <laughs> but either way. But it's designed to kind of enhance the understanding and the understanding of the core teams, the under- understanding of stakeholders, but it's around kind of building rapport with them and, and signaling really early on before the project even kicks off or anything. Mm. We're going to work in transparency and we've all got a unique point of view around what this should be. So let's get it out. Let's get it out on the sand and let's 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 work in transparency so everyone can see where we're starting from. Mm-hmm. And then we'll use this tool to create a, a point of reference, if you like. I think what we can always kind of fall back on. So I guess when I think about um, the dare tool, like the, I guess the one on one of it is first we look at kind of the main objective of a tool is to kind of dedicate time at the start of the project to kind of deep understand, like say the stakeholders and the dynamics of their relationships, and then it's kind of focusing on kind of key individuals in that project. So this is something what I see all the time, which is project starts and there's a core team, and then all of a sudden it bloats really quick. And all of a sudden, you've got like 45 stakeholders for something that only needs two. Mm-hmm. So if there's something around really getting really laser focused on who that core team is and let's get, let's get them engaged straight away. And it covers all sorts of things like how you want to communicate, how, you know, what's the relationship values, what's a deeper understanding of each other's wants and needs, and actually how can we make everyone look good? Because there's a big piece around that, around every project should be successful, great. But actually, when you needle into the human tension, often it's how can I make this project look really good? How can it make me look really good? Mm. And for me, that's one of the values that you want to get out from the get go, because if we can start to tick them boxes, everything becomes a lot more easier. Mm. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's done in a few different ways. Like it can be done in a canvas. It can be done in it in, in a workshop. Um, It can be done in a survey, but to be honest, I'd probably highly recommend you don't do this in a survey. But yeah, it's it's ultimately around having difficult conversations, but making it in a in a more engaging and psychological safe way. I suppose, and it it's starting out a project with the intention of making the implicit explicit, because uh, if you're not talking about what it is that everybody wants from the project, uh, not just in terms of outcomes, but perhaps uh professional um uh capital um about you know making people look good then that remains an implicit driver and if somebody feels as if they uh, aren't perhaps they're but they're they're um not benefiting from it at all and maybe adversely uh they they are uh this, this is doing them harm because it's going against what their stakeholders uh would expect uh, from uh, from them, uh, mm. then then there's an opportunity at the outset to uh, to to discuss this because of course somebody who isn't benefiting or perhaps is uh, is being detrimentally affected could actually derail 
the uh, the project. So I could see how uh, the making making those those relationship expectations explicit could be hugely beneficial. Well, you, you just reminded me of um, a project I was on a while back, and there was someone in my team was tasked to go out and, and identify what our EX principles could be, how we design, how we show up, what we do, and on this mission. What she had was to go and you know come up with easy X principles, test and validate all that good stuff. She also found eight other people in the business doing the same thing, right? And they like okay, so straight away there's duplication, mm-hmm. there's there's conflict happening, and nobody wanted to like go of their Lego bricks. My principles are better than your principles, and this and that, and it was one of the things where everyone knew it was happening. Everyone knew, but no one wanted to come in and go. Let's just get this out in the air right quick. Like, let's get it out and let's actually align resource. And let's come up with something better because clearly you've done a lot of work. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of work. They've done a lot of work. There's something around actually how do we bring that together again and make sense of it and then use that to cre- create something where we can all go in the same direction together. Mm-hmm. But instead, they went to high five each other and say, job well done. And then let them down the line, it ended up blowing up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you're spot on. There's something around that kind of everyone gets that seduction of these are mine and you can't play in my space and I can't play in your space. Mm. But actually, yeah, by kind of exposing that from the get-go, it just makes life easier. Ultimately. Yeah, that's it. You can win together. Um, yeah. And and you you also explore um, uh, in, a, in an adjacent chapter, I think, um, the creation of the right problem statement. Now I now I loved this. <laughs> like, and I and I will admit that if I had spent time uh on creating a problem statement, an agreed problem statement with stakeholders when I was running learning and development departments, I could see how it would have solved a lot, um uh, a lot of problems a lot quicker. But but probably more important would have stopped us wasting time and money on things that that we kind of deep down knew wasn't going to solve the real problem. So so I'd love to know, Danny, in, in, in relation to in relation to problem statements, how does this work and how do you think we might apply this in L&D? So I think a lot of the time problem statements is a massive piece, I guess. We could we could needle into it for a while. But a lot of the time is there's the what we think the problem is versus what actually the real problem is. Hmm. And often I use I use a, um, the analogy of a ladder. I think I call it the ladder of abstraction It's in the book. And it's really simple, right? You bring what you think the problem is. And before you go into the, this is a problem, I need X, you challenge it, you sweat it a little bit. Hmm. You go, right, well, what does that problem look like if we go up the ladder? And the more up the ladder you go, the more abstract you go. And the more you kind of ask, what what if what if what if imagine if the more you come down the ladder the more you get into how 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 mm-hmm. so you get down into tactics now the problem statement you might have might be absolutely perfect it might be valuable however in the time i've seen it i say it's only happened twice and actually the value comes when you go either up or down the ladder a little bit more and the way i kind of explain it is you go up the ladder and you go okay Let's use leadership. Create a leadership program. Mm-hmm. Okay, up the ladder one wrong. Well, why do you want to go? Why do you want to create a leadership program? Because we want to enable our people. Okay, so then that becomes another statement, a problem statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why do you want to enable other people? Up the ladder again. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you get these 10 or 15 different problem statements. And then you go, okay, 
does the initial problem what he brought, is that still viable now? Or is it these problems what he needs to really resolve? Mm. And then that's where the value comes because then you start, you kind of start dismantling the problem into the yeah. elements and the DNA of what it is. I mean, you tighten your challenge around that then. So it's it's simple. It's simple, but you know, I think we don't we don't spend enough time sweating the challenge and we spend too much time perfecting the solution. And it's actually the other way around. The values in the the work done before actually building or or coming up with any experiments. I suppose you this is the stage then you'd also uncover any red herrings. So so again, using the leadership example, if you're with your stakeholders and you ask why do we need um uh why do we need this leadership program you get well i believe that they're uh, uh an underserved population um okay um so and, and where would you go from there would you would you then go up and say why do you believe they're an underserved population okay so why do you believe you're underserved say right because we have lots for junior managers um, we have lots of the nuts and bolts of leadership, but but as for what a con- what what it means to be a consistent leader here, we don't. Again, I still believe we're operating in the um, we've convinced ourselves this is a good idea rather than what's the actual problem. Okay, so so what would be the benefit then of having a consistent program for this and, and i think that you might even take this up to a level where you actually say do you know what i think i'm just talking nuts maybe there yeah. is another problem that we need to solve we go okay that's a really interesting one so were you to actually look at instead of looking at the solution and saying we need a leadership development program what might be a couple of problem statements that you'd make about general leadership here that a program or other solution could perhaps address spot on so yeah as you go up the ladder you're going to get to a point where it's it's system it's systemic mm-hmm. and and that's that's valuable in going up the ladder but at some point you'll go go okay now we're fixing world hunger mm-hmm. and then you go okay that's probably not available to leadership so you'll end up going so far up the ladder that you go okay we've hit that but then you come down again and you go okay well we started off as leadership but actually just two rungs up we're looking at psychological safety we're looking at empowerment we're looking at people feel scared to to run experiments we're looking at these these and you'll you'll end up getting 10 different problems from that initial one here and then you'll look at them 10 and then you'll put them on individual ladders again Mm. and you'll go up and down on that ladder and then eventually you'll look at it and you go ah okay it's not leadership It's, it's not leadership it's it's empowerment. It's actually, we could probably kill leadership off. So here's a, here's a great example of this. So we was working with a large bank in the past. And th- again, it was leadership. Mm-hmm. And it was a case of, okay, we need to empower people. You know, leaders are taking up too much time. You know, we're getting bombarded with emails to make decisions and whatever else. And we ran a culture crafter, a culture hack. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right, okay, well, how about for a week, We'll create a behavioral experiment experiment, and we'll hand off all power to your team for a week. Like, let's just see what happens. Mm. So we create, you create this kind of, you have an assumption, you create a couple of experiments, and then you'll run that experiment in that team for a week. Okay. Measurements, everything's on there, proper experiment. And then you come back at the end of the week and you compare to what the, the leader would have done. And working with, with my last employee, 
found that actually, I think it was 97% of the decisions made by the team, the leader would have done. And in a few instances, the team made better decisions than what the leader would have done. Mm. So then using that as an analogy, you go, actually, maybe we don't need leadership. Maybe we need to kind of democratize what leadership means. But you have only ever got there by sweating up and down that ladder and mm. looking at the DNA problems. So you go too far down, you get into solution seduction too soon. Mm-hmm. You go too far up, you get into abstract world hunger too soon. Yeah. But going up and down that ladder and then creating these other problem statements off the back of it allows you to start tackling and and kind of rooting in onto the DNA and really uprooting what the actual problem is and not that perceived problem. Nice. Yeah. Makes total sense, which brings me nicely on to uh, uh, to my next question, because sense making itself has three chapters uh, in your book, Danny, uh, mm-hmm. those being the human, the service and the system. Uh, and a common thread throughout this is making the most of what makes us human. So what's the counter to this? What 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 is what is the risk of 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 and the, the examples of of us being not human enough or less human and what should we do instead okay so big question um okay so if you look at the risk of not being more human let's go right back to the fact of if you're not human and you don't care about your people's problems then i go care about your solution Mm -hmm. your products your services and ultimately they'll find another subscription service aka work who do Mm -hmm. and they'll leave your business like they will they'll leave your business i've worked with massive companies who've got this wrong and their turnover has been over 10 million pound in mm. companies in losing people within 12 months because they initially didn't add that human element to what they was designing for. So if you if you don't add that human at the center of everything you do, who are you really designing for? Mm. Like whose tensions, whose pains, what gains are you going to identify and who is that person for mm. if you don't put a human there? Now, the argument could be, well, you're creating it for the business. Great. Well, what's your business if you haven't got human? Yeah. Like, and you see it all the time. Like some of these massive companies, you've mentioned Disney in, in the past, Lego, Red Bull, lots and lots of companies all have great EVPs. Mm-hmm. Like they have value propositions, which is so good. And they managed to keep their people for so long. Mm-hmm. And that's because I think they put the human center in everything they do. Disney's known for experience, right? Like it's known for it. Yeah. Red Bull like their brand and their perception of what it means to be there is next level. Mm. And I think eventually you'll see this. You'll see the companies who who design for the human and the people experience. And then you'll have these companies down here who have designed for over-effectiveness, over-efficiency. Mm. And there's a balance. There's a balance. Like there's always a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. Um, but ultimately, if you're in the game of humans, then you need to ultimately build for that human mm. i'm not I sure that's 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 in uh, contrast to as, as you said you know uh the other things you know that you almost look as if you become a corporate vessel that if you if what you design for is process and you are um re-engineering just to to maintain your commitment to process or to re-engineer because of ineffective process and people end up having shitty work experiences because process and systems and hierarchy are more important than the lived human experience and i suppose a lot of the time dan that's why we receive substandard 
um, customer service or 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 experience general experience with a with a a company because they are representing what they they themselves experience. Hundred percent. And it for me, and we're getting into experience design here, which is obviously a point I love. It comes down to the t-shirt test, right? And I use the analogy of Tesco Mobile. Years and years ago, I worked at Tesco Mobile, and before it is where it is now, everyone knew everybody in that organization. Everyone knew everyone. Everyone would look out for each other. Mm. And everyone was proud to wear the t-shirt outside of work. Like you see this, you see it in bad companies when you go, get this t-shirt off. I need mm. to be. But actually what we found was people were proud in wearing the t-shirt to the point where there was always stories coming in around people putting petrol at the petrol station. And then someone seen they had a Tesco shirt and I was asking them to, how do I do this with a SIM card? How do I do that? That EX and that CX are so closely linked. Mm. And what you want to do, you know, in the second book, which I talk about chance and cheers, and that's ultimately what it is. You want people cheering along. You don't want them chanting shocking things at you, like you see at a football, like when it's the other team. <laughs> and you want to design for chance. You want to design for cheers. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that comes from experience. That comes from designing a place where employees want to be to help the customers of that business. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we'll come back to uh, uh, to the follow-up books after the next question, uh, but I'd like to explore with you creativity, Dan, because you go into it in, in quite some detail in the book, and I know this is an important topic for you. So and so creativity in the context of the um, uh, of, of this book, what, what is it you're trying to convey and what should the reader be taking away? Um, you're not as creative as you think. Mm. And if you want to get really creative, bring a child into your sessions. Mm. Obviously, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but the reality of it is, is there was an experiment done years and years ago, and it was with a paperclip. Mm. And it was a case of, right, give this paperclip to children and give this paperclip to adults and see how many things they can come up with. I think on average, the adults came up with maybe 10 or 15, I think. Mm. I can't remember. It's in the book. Um, but then children came up with over 100 ideas of a paperclip. And that's because they haven't grown up yet. They haven't been told what the art of possible is. They haven't had these limiting beliefs put on them. And they haven't been overly shaped by process. Mm. And I guess for me, when I think about design, especially when I go into that incubation phase, is it's two very clear things. First, we go in with this dream mindset. And that's where you embed your inner child. And it sounds really fluffy and cliche, and and I get it. But you have to go in and design for what could be, what could be. Seeing past the the barriers what are in place in an organization. Now, obviously, you don't want to stay there because, of course, you can't bring people in on speedboats to your new business. Of course, you can't do that. Mm. But actually, what we're trying to do is go, well, while we can't bring people to speedboats, actually, there's something around how we bring people to work. Mm. and how we create that first experience. And then you go, but what could we then do with that? So you have to go with big first to then mm. distill down. And that ultimately takes you into that second mindset, which is distill. Like, ultimately, you know, when you've got the big ideas, you can take them down to the the, the kind of few. And there you, you're kind of testing for desirability, feasibility, and viability. Because it's great that, you know, your people might want to be brought in the speedboat. It's great. It's desirable for your people. But actually, when you look underneath it, it's probably just one a better experience of being brought into work. Mm-hmm. Then you use the viability and feasibility to go, actually, can we do it? Should we do it? Are we the right people to do it? 
And then it's that point where you start actually moving into true innovative approach to designing better products, services, and experiences. But you need creativity. You need it. And I think I think a lot of the time we spend too much we spend too much saying this can't be done here or no that won't be done here you know when i when i go into my incubation workshops i bring in um red cards and and amber cards um yeah amber and red cards and i'm like okay i need you to show up like this this is what our behaviors i need you to bring if you don't bring them you'll get a yellow card mm. and then you do it twice red card go out because you're you're not you're becoming a, a liability to where yeah. we need to get to and I think sometimes when you see like brainstorming sessions where there's post-its everywhere and everyone's high-fiving, they don't have that distilled part where you're like, okay, let's go from the, the what could be to what can we do? And mm-hmm. that's where the business value comes in. That's where you can start to measure and, and actually create really innovative internal products. Yeah, I love it. So so again, turning creativity into action which is which is the the, the point in itself uh now danny we've signposted then uh all's left to do is really to signpost your next two appearances on the uh on the podcast so tell us what we can expect from uh from books uh two and three yeah so books two and three um so book two is looking at experimentation and experience design and i've talked a lot on my newsletter get knotted um about ex- ex- um about experimentation but i've touched it in a way which is consumable right you can take it and you can apply it straight away but actually what i'm going to do is show you how you take the things from the first part and really experiment really quick and that is ultimately around how you save resource how you do so much for so little and then the experience the kind of experience design part is the things what we've talked about in the past on the other podcast right like how do you create experiences what really matter how do you design for macro micro and nano experiences and actually how you can do it because if you look at experiences they're on a scale right they're on a scale of macro belonging and then there's the the nano which is what's the internal story what i'm telling myself what's the space what i operate in and there's a lot of nuance in between how you design for them so that's book two and then book three is culture crafter and that's going to be looking at team accounting team effectiveness and can i swear on this podcast david yep go for it Cool. And I can cut through all the bullshit around, hey, let's put people into team workshops. Mm-hmm. Nope, 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 nope. Let's identify your team. Let's identify where your effectiveness is, where you want it to be. And let's spin up some culture crafters, some plays and some experiments, what you can do in the flow of work without being dragged to some weird workshop or offsite for two days where you kind of paint pictures of each other or whatever you do at these offsites. So that's more around effectiveness and creating mindsets behaviors for creating good internal culture brilliant so there's plenty to look uh, plenty to look forward to uh but danny uh this has been uh, uh this has been a great conversation um so uh, i'm sure you'd like lo- you'd love people to go out and buy uh your current book the insightful innovator available in all good bookshops and some of the rubbish ones but where would you like people to uh, to buy this i'd go i'd say go with amazon honestly yeah. i'd say go with amazon it was funny when when i wrote this book <clears throat> Oh, this is going to get you, this is going to get you cancelled, David. Um, <laughs> when when I wrote this book, I, I got offered a a publisher offered mm-hmm. me a contract, and when I was designing, I was like, actually, I'm talking about creativity, I'm talking about experience, and I need this book to be different. Like, mm-hmm. I need it to feel different. It needs to feel not like them other HR and EX books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that meant that I 
declined the contract and kind of went it alone. And with the likes of Amazon now, I know Amazon love him or hate him, but what it does is it gives people like me the opportunity to write my own book in a way which I wanted to do it. So yeah, I'd say Amazon's a way to go, to be honest. Lovely. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, that you've, you've piqued people's interest uh, and I'm sure uh, the listener will be uh, will be interested in uh, in buying that too. So, so Danny, thank you very much uh, for coming back. Uh, we'll look forward to you uh, returning again to, to talk about books two and three. But in the meantime, thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. Thanks for having me, David. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And please do check out Danny's MindChimp podcast, on which I've been a recent guest. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective, of which I'm an active member. Join me and thousands of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn. Again, you'll find those links in the show notes. And goodbye for now.